All right, welcome back to Film Shake, the 90s movies podcast, here to talk about the terrible and the awesome. I'm Jordan. This is Nick. And we're here today to talk about episode 20, Joe versus the Volcano from 1990. That's right. Seems to be one of our favorite years here. Yeah, we've covered quite a few from 90. I hadn't thought about that. But yeah. I don't, I don't know what's up with that. But just, you know, you got to get it, you know, we're a 90s podcast, so you got to get it going right there at the start of the decade, just kick things off right. So I guess we can just keep coming back to this year until we've exhausted it. That's right. And speaking of exhausted, I think (laughs) our kids have driven both of us to the point of exhaustion tonight, which is perfect. I think this is going to set the tone great for Joe versus the Volcano. And, you know, we're re- we're recording this at a it's so late. There's not even a time for this anymore. It's like flirting or something. <laughs> flirting. Before we talk about that, we have to talk about 1997's Trojan War. That's you, right. Uh, I let you win at trivia last time. <laughs> you episode. let me win. It, Come on. That was a flawless victory. That's right. Yeah. Go back and listen to that episode. Clearly, Jordan beat me fair and square. Fair and square. In an alternate universe. I definitely let him win thinking, you know, he's not going to make me watch anything I'm going to totally hate <laughs> and want to just quit movies cold turkey after I watch it. Trojan War, 1997, directed by George Huang. I have to admit... I started watching this movie. I got about halfway through. I was so depressed by the movie. I went to Taco Bell, which I don't just go to Taco Bell when I'm depressed. I go there all the time because I love it and it's awesome. I really went there to get cheered up. So I watched the second half of Trojan War in the Taco Bell parking lot while I was eating my nachos grande box. And let me tell you, there's one good thing about this movie, and it's this. I'm almost 40. I'm on that borderline between Gen X and Millennial. Millennials love avocado, right? They love guac. And I've always hated it and thought it was disgusting. Like on a seven-layer dip, I'm like picking it out. But, you know, I'm watching Trojan War. I'm so depressed by how bad the movie is that I'm not even paying attention to my Nachos Grande box. I'm just kind of silently weeping into it. And I eat the guacamole and realize, hey, I haven't puked. Maybe guac really isn't that bad. You know, compared to this movie, it's amazing. So I ate all the guacamole on my Nachos Grande box. And that's the best thing to come out of Trojan War. That's the power I, of this, I hated movie, this movie, man. So much. It it changed your feelings on guacamole that you previously hated, right? It really did. It's the power really, of movies. I could have eaten dog turds and thought, "Oh man, I actually like dog turds." In comparison to Trojan War, these taste amazing. I don't even have to season these dog turds. I could eat them rotten. <laughs> I could you leave them in the yard for a month. I'll come um, back. They'll be they'll be petrified by then. The sun will have purified them of impurities, and they'll be clean. Well, before we get into any more strong feelings about Trojan War, <laughs> yeah. So, so go ahead, uh, set it up for us. What is this film about? I hate it so much. I'm not going to even improv it. I'm going to read the IMDb description of it. There you go. Brad is about to hook up with the girl of his dreams, but runs into a problem. No condom! So Brad sets out into the night to find one, running into many obstacles along the way, while not knowing his best friend, Leah, is in love with him. (laughs) And Leah played by the... uh... Wait, don't say who it is, because, you know, you would think Leah is kind of frumpy in the movie, kind of someone who is overlooked... 
in its 1997 smokehouse, Jennifer Love Hewitt, who every single male who had hit puberty by that point, who was alive, was in love with. But here, she's overlooked by Will Friedel's Brad Kimball for some other chick. I don't even remember who she was or what she looks like. I, th- I think your screen in the Taco Bell parking lot was a little too small there, my friend. <laughs> no, that's totally totally believable, right? That his best friend would be smoking Jennifer Love Hewitt. But, you know, she's wearing the leather jacket. She's She's got the kind of tomboy attitude. My cousin <laughs> cut a picture of her out of a magazine and put it in his wallet. He put it in his wallet and carried around a picture of Jennifer Love Hewitt. Right? Like... <laughs> What the hell? How is this believable in any universe? We were all in love with her back in the late 90s. But yeah, uh, not Fred Willard, like I accidentally said last time. Can you? I, I was <laughs> I trying think to say. I cut that out. I was trying to. Yeah, you cut that out, but I was trying to remember Will Friedel from Boy Meets World, uh, the older brother from Boy Meets World. But I said Fred Willard, and then I just had to laugh at the image that put in my head of, you know, old Fred Willard from. Like, this is Spinal Tap or um, A Mighty Wind, like, trying to run down and, and, and find a condom <laughs> and go on, like, this this after-hours shenanigans spree. Wouldn't, how do you how do, do, fellow kids? Yeah, if he played a 17-year-old boy, that would be great. Yeah, would, would you like that movie any better? Yeah, yeah, Fred Willard in that role, that would have been some really weird, really <laughs> disturbing anti-comedy. Yeah, kind of creepy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this movie already is an unintentional anti-comedy, so <laughs> why not just take it a step further? Because, hey, I, I didn't laugh watching this, man. I you didn't, didn't laugh, laugh at time. all? Not once. You were just, once. this just killed your soul. It really well, did. It, it was the worst. It, was this, the, it wasn't uh, the worst movie I've seen, but it was bad. I this is the, <laughs> this is definitely a, a nostalgia, like guilty pleasure for me, uh, where, you know, I remember seeing this in the major video rental store back in the day and uh, maybe saw the trailer and just like, oh, that sounds hilarious and funny. And remember watching it with our group of guy friends and, and enjoying it. And I've always been a fan of these, you know, on, you know, all set during one night where the action all takes place on one night. So, yeah, I always remember loving it. And, I have to say, re- I rewatched it with you because I told you I would. And I, it's not a great movie and it's cliche. And yeah, it's not believable at all that he doesn't go for Jennifer Love Hewitt from the get go. But I laughed. I enjoyed this. It definitely has some casual racism going on with the Mexican characters in this. By casual, do you mean like a suit and tie or like some blue jeans? Because. It wasn't that casual. It was pretty bad. (laughs) It was pretty bad. Yeah, It didn't make me cringe as much as uh, some of the stuff we'll talk about a little bit later, Joe Joe versus the Volcano. Oh, I I have an excuse for Joe versus the Volcano. I'm sure you do. Yeah, I know the excuse. But anyway, anyway, yeah, that was kind of glaring. But, you know, there was just some some goofy, funny parts that were really absurd and over the top that made me laugh. So, yeah, I could still enjoy it, even though knowing it wasn't, you know, the best of its bunch. And uh, one good thing that came out of it was I'd never seen uh, Martin Scorsese's After Hours. And after watching Trojan War, I kept seeing people refer to this as like a teen comedy spin on After Hours. And so I went and watched that film for the first time and really enjoyed it. Obviously, a lot darker, more twisted, but it has that same 
guy trying to get with a girl and then trying to get home and being stuck and trying all throughout one night to accomplish a goal and not being able to accomplish it and everything. But it made me kind of curious at how many homages that I now realize were in Trojan War to After Hours, which you know, I never picked up on, obviously, as a kid watching this in 97. But there's there's straight up some shots and some scenes from After Hours lifted and put in this. Like, there's a moment where Brad, the Will Friedel character, is being interrogated by the police and he's kind of giving him a rundown of the events of the night so far. And it kind of like fast forwards through like different snippets of his dialogue. And that was straight out of a scene in After Hours. And then there's the scene of him like, you know, falling down on his knees in the middle of the street going like, why, God, why is this happening to me? And that was straight out after hours. So, yeah, that was just kind of fun to, to compare these very different movies, but seeing those uh, those callbacks to Scorsese. That was the other good thing about this movie. You told me that, and I went back and rewatched After Hours after a long time to the point where I almost forgot, or I did forget that I had ever watched it. And then, you know, I put it on, and I was like, oh, yeah, 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 I watched this in high school back in the day. And it's awesome. And it's still awesome. In fact, I liked it even more than I did back then, probably because I was comparing it to Trojan War. (laughs) But that movie's great. Go watch that instead. I think it might be shorter than Trojan War, actually. Yeah, you gave that a 5 out of 5, right? Or 10 out of 10 on your scale. perfect movie for me. Perfect yeah. movie for me. And maybe it was just the Trojan War boost, you know, just like it got you through guacamole and all these other things that you went through. Maybe, it's maybe just, so, By man. comparison, it's just boosting everything. We talked about this, and I don't want to get to too big of a digression here, so I won't. I'll just talk really fast. After that, I got into Letterbox, which you've been telling me to do for a long been time. Been hounding you. Know, you. Letterboxd yeah. app. Because I'm starting, I watch so many movies in high school that I'm starting to forget that I've seen them. I'm, I just watched a billion movies from the 70s and 80s then, and it's tough to remember. So I'm starting to try to notate everything I, I remember that I watched on Letterboxd. So I hurried up and put After Hours on there, and I'm putting other stuff so good, that doesn't good. happen again. And I'll put Trojan War in there too because I don't want to ever forget I watched this and <laughs> accidentally start watching it again. I'm sure you won't, yeah. And that'll be probably one of your few half stars, right? Yeah, I'm a... I don't usually rate movies that badly, generally because I watch stuff I think I'll like. Same here. If you've been to The Experiment, which is my you know, what I've run for the last 16 years, I guess, you know, reviewing movies and things, I usually watch movies or play video games I think I'll enjoy. So I'm usually dishing out six, sevens, eights, nines, and tens. Not usually that low because I'm not really watching or playing things that I think are going to suck. Right. But every now and then I get forced to watch a movie because I let you win at trivia, <laughs> which I'm never doing again, by the way. That's, right. That's done. If I beat you the next 40 times straight, I'm not going to let I've you win. I've cursed myself 41. now. Yeah, I've given you such a terrible movie. You'll never you just fake your loss. Yeah, I normally, I notice I give a lot of fours. I think on average on Letterboxd, four stars out of five is my most used review. Yeah, I don't usually watch a whole lot of stuff that I don't like yeah it's usually just losing trivia to you and yeah then having to watch something terrible i'm still bummed you didn't love nemesis i mean yeah i'm just really sad 
I was going to make a picture of the lead from that, my picture in letterbox, but the it was too small. It wouldn't accept it. So I had to put a picture of my real face, unfortunately, or fortunately, oh. if you like looking at my face. Well, speaking of letterbox uh, star ratings, yeah, I ended up giving Trojan War three stars out of five. And that's probably totally all nostalgia, but I enjoy <laughs> I laughed. I mean, you know, a movie that can make me laugh and, and have fun with it. Uh, you know, I'm going to rate a little bit more than something. that was just a pain to get through. And I never felt that way in the film. It's cool, just kind of ridiculous thing after ridiculous thing, which as we've discussed on the show is kind of my thing. So, <laughs> yeah. It's very true. I'm glad you enjoyed the movie you forced me to watch. Right. It also, I didn't think you'd hate it that much. I, did, I was like, oh, this will be a fun, you know, late 90s teen comedy. I'm not trying to attack Will Friedel here, but he was great as like the brother in Boy Meets World. Mm -hmm. But as the lead that I'm supposed to pull for, he's just so slimy and unlikable. In this movie. I just want to punch <laughs> him in the face. Every time he got physically injured, I was clapping. You know? oh, There's there. probably some screwball moments I was supposed to laugh, but I was just like, yes, bite him in the nuts, dog. Get him. No, that was Kill him. the bad guy that got bit in the nuts by the dog. I know it bit the wrong guy. <laughs> You were hoping Will Friedel got bit in the nuts? I was talking to my wife about this today, and I'm not going to mention who I was talking about. Not you, I love you, Jordan. Someone else. I'd rather someone just be an asshole. There's nothing worse than the toxic nice guy. All that to say, <sighs> Will Friedel here is a toxic nice guy. If you really look at what he wants and what he does, he's awful, right? But the other guy is so outwardly bad that outwardly he makes Wilfried to look better. But really, he's just a total slime ball that made me start enjoying guacamole in comparison. <laughs> like a damn millennial like he's, you, who I'm sure loves guacamole. He's just a he's just a young teenage boy that you know wants to get it on with this hot girl that he's in love with, or that he thinks he's in love with, that he lusts after. But, uh, yeah, can you blame him? He's just following his hormones, Nick. I, I wouldn't call him slimy. He's just doing what he's, you know, he's a product of his time. It's 97, you know. He just needs that condom. <laughs> but, no, maybe a little slimy. I don't know. I I, I never found him unlikable. He's just kind of like, oh, he's just this kind of nerdy goof that can't quite get what he needs to to move forward in the story and then yeah the the ending where he does end up falling for jennifer love hewitt is totally expected and cliche and kind of forced but yeah no whatever it's it's the way it's supposed to be that it's what this kind of teen comedy is gonna do regardless of what you think so you might as well just roll with it check out love hewitt and that and that sweet white dress at the big party scene you know now I'm this live ball. <laughs> what he needed was a dog bite to the nuts. And what I need is to stop talking about this. This is too much time before the Trojan War. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Joe versus the Volcano. Hey, so I hadn't watched this movie in 29 years. I wow. watched it when I was a kid with my dad. I think I was 10 when I watched it the first time. And then I watched it a second time again. And I may have recorded on the VHS, but then I forgot about it to the point that I forgot who even made it. I thought it was a Joe Dante movie, and it's not. It's uh, John Patrick Shanley who made Congo, which we talked about in our last regular episode. That's right. He wrote and directed this. 
And I'm glad that you made me revisit this again. A lot more cool. than uh, than Trojan War. A lot more than Trojan War, yeah. So yeah, this was my pick. I had never seen this. And yeah, it's 30 years old now this year. And figured it was time to get into it. Time to go back and watch some Tom Hanks stuff that I'd missed. You know, just never struck me as interesting. I don't think I'd ever seen the trailer for it. I probably just saw the the cover of the VHS tape in the store. But yeah, after watching Congo and loving it and appreciating it for how awesome of a movie it is, unlike Nick, I figured, it yeah, sucks. I need <laughs> I need to get into some more of this guy, John Patrick Shanley, and check out what else he's done. I haven't seen Moonstruck, you know, I haven't seen a lot of his other stuff, so... I have seen Doubt, which is great, which uh really different from Joe. It's really different from Congo, obviously. So interesting to see this guy's filmography and how different his movies are from each other. But yeah, I was excited to get into this one. I believe you had the first Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks collaboration. So That's right. That was first fun. of three. Uh, yeah. least successful of the three too. the other two movies i was about to say when harry met sally but she did that the year before with billy crystal right it's um sleepless in seattle and then they did you've got mail which was at one point my mom's favorite movie i don't know if it still is but those both made more than 100 million joe versus the volcano which is a lot odder than those two only made 39 million on a 25 million budget and you know they always say if you don't make double your budget, you lost money. Good that they went back for two more because I think they have great chemistry. Yeah, they do. And they actually made a fourth film together, but uh, that was going to be one of my trivia questions. So I, I won't spoil that for you since it seems like you might be not in the know. And that could give me a, a bone up on the trivia there. Yeah, go for it, Jordan. We go shall see. It. I'm going to murder you in trivia. I'm just telling you right <laughs> You're now. You're like, I'm Googling it now as we speak. <laughs> We're not in the trivia zone yet, so you're thinking maybe you can go find something out before we get there? No, don't do it. Don't do it, Nick. No, I'm thinking that the questions that I wrote for you would put me in prison for cruelty. <laughs> you don't even want to know the stuff. <laughs> Unnecessary roughness. Yeah, foul on you. Yeah, let's get into Joe. Let's get into the nitty gritty, as we say, the plot details. Yes. So what do you think about the opening song for the movie? I really dug it. I thought it was Tom Waits at first, but it's right. not. It was Merle Travis, 16 Tons. So yeah, good. 16 Tons. I mean, obviously playing into the themes of this movie, how we open up right into this muddy parking lot in front of this terrible old factory looking building. And there's just lines of cars, lines of drone workers walking in. You shovel 16 tons. It was great. <laughs> great. As far as the song goes, I felt I was a little tired of it by the end of the credit scene. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Jordan. It, it just went You're on wrong. for like five minutes. I mean, not a bad choice of a song. Like I said, it does work with like, there's definitely some satire right away that he's signaling from the beginning with, you know, there's fences on it. There's signs on the fences that say, you know, the company's name, American Panoscope, home of the rectal probe, 50 years <laughs> of petroleum jelly, you know, right away you're, you're getting all that. And, but yeah, the yeah, song was just kind of things that literally screw people. And I love the dystopian imagery too. Oh it's yeah. Like just apocalyptic his work site. Yeah. So good. Yeah. It, it establishes that kind of fantastical 
it's not whimsical, but it's definitely like outlandish, which, you know, most of the rest of the movie just gets more and more absurd from there. But yeah, I I definitely was drawn right in with that opening shot and definitely established its uniqueness right away with like the production design of the factory. And, you know, you've got this wicked shot of one of the factory workers he's got like the tube of petroleum jelly and he's just like squirting it into this bucket that's labeled petroleum jelly and it's just gross looking and everything's just grimy and dirty joe walks up to the factory and the first thing that happens is the sole of his shoe comes off you know so it's like oh he's losing his soul wink wink Uh, all that was fun the nasty shot of the wife beatered mustachioed man with the hose full of petroleum (laughs) jelly just filling up buckets and i kind of want to even set aside the scene where he walks into his advertising department area that scene should just be talked about on its own but yeah the the beginning the credit sequence like you said the the song is great for a while but to me it just kept going and started grading on me. Now, I, I could have done 10 more minutes of that. Man, I sold Easily my soul to the company store. I was like, okay, we get the point. Let's move on. You know, like, I don't know. Some some of the it. sequences in this film felt that way. Where it was just like, okay, it's going on a little too long. Let's move on. Let's cut. You know, let's. Don't forget the flower that gets stepped on, you know, the flower oh, that's growing right. out of the pavement. The, the Tupac of the opening scene, so to say, gets stepped on and smashed. And we see as he goes into his actual office, Joe, played by Tom Hanks, it's even worse inside than it is outside. Yeah. His office is just sickly feeling. It's it got these sick. flickering, seizure-inducing, fluorescent lights. And then yeah. his boss is on the phone having this repetitious, circular, yelling conversation. Dan Hadea. It's like, all right, your boss is Dan Hadea. You know this is the worst place to work ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And I love Dan Hadea. He's He's so good. Like, I think of Blood Simple right away and then your favorite alien resurrection which i watched (laughs) for our alien uh, recap so yeah oh yeah good stuff and he's yelling i know he can get the job but can he do the job i'm not arguing with you i'm not arguing with you yeah and then he just says that again and again on a loop for five straight minutes i feel like longer than the 16 ton song and tom Uh, hanks is just trying to get to his desk and avoid that, but he, he can't. It permeates the walls and everything. And the coat rack is falling apart, and the walls are like the sick green color, and the coffee is the grossest coffee I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> it's just this cold, like brown liquid with clumps of cream in it. It's just so nasty. And Tom Hanks has the worst mullet anyone has ever had in this movie he looks sick like he he literally well he's a hypochondriac in the movie so you know he just looks blotchy and terrible i know you haven't seen uh being john malkovich we we guessed it on the force five podcast where we talked about our favorite uh sci-fi 90s films watching this i just have to think man charlie kaufman must have been inspired by this film the drudgery of office work and whatnot and then just the nasty hair that everyone has in this film because if you watch being john malkovich 
which everyone just has this greasy, lank, nasty hair. And they're all in like, yeah, these just weird office uh, scenarios as well. So I was like, huh, I wonder. Just, I'm curious now. I wonder if that was an influence at all. Maybe it was. 1990 to 1999, for sure. Maybe Kaufman had those images in his head for a decade, and that's why he made Being John Malkovich. <laughs> that's all right. because of our old friend here, John, John Patrick, Patrick Shanley. Shanley. That's right. So let me just tell you, dude. I will say this. I still hate Congo. My opinion on Congo hasn't changed at all, mm-hmm. except I think I may be able to give you that John Patrick Shanley made it bad on purpose. I can give you that, maybe. After watching this film? Yes. And doubt. Yeah, there's there's definitely some similarities that I found with this and Congo. With the wacky tone and the kind of episodic adventure feel to it. It's like, I mean, obviously the volcano, but I'm guessing that was in the Crichton book. There's definitely some over-the-top, wacky, fantastical elements that rang true for bringing Congo back to mind while I was watching this. There's a great scene, uh, and this sets up stuff for later, too, where Joe's not feeling well. He's got this Hawaiian-looking lamp that he pulls out on his desk because he's got to get some sort of light that isn't sucking the juice out of his eyeballs, as he says later, like these flickering fluorescent lights. His boss, Hadea, comes in and yells at him for not having enough catalogs. But Joe reminded him three weeks ago and then two weeks ago. and But he didn't remind him one week ago. And Hadea is just, you know, he, he plays this really great version of just a catch-22 bureaucratic just hell stain of a boss you know he's just yelling at him for not having enough catalogs when it's actually his job to order the catalogs and he's telling him things like it's not good enough joe it's not nearly good enough and i want those catalogs and tom hanks can only respond with this whimper and he's just this crumpled flower of a person well then please order them (laughs) (laughs) And having worked in office jobs for most of my adult life, it's very relatable. You know, right. obviously it's very heightened and exaggerated. Yes. But you do feel that way at a lot of office jobs. Not all of them. The one I have now is good. Yeah. But a lot of the other ones I've had, I definitely felt like that. And, you know, you kind of put totems on your desk like his lamp just so you can look at it and think I could be somewhere else. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't have to be here. I'm here by choice. My life is in my hands. I don't have to do this. But Joe is kind of at a place where he's just quit trying. And he's a hypochondriac now. He always feels sick because his his life is sick. And there was something here. So he used to be a firefighter, right? We find right. this out. He was a firefighter before and he saved people's lives. He was apparently very heroic but it kind of wore him down and he quit and took this job that kind of muddied the themes just a little bit that he had that past history because the movie is really about appreciating your life and, you know, living your life to the fullest and him actually having had a, some kind of past that wasn't working in an office kind of threw me a little bit and I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. Spoiler alert. I like this movie overall, but I don't know how I felt about that. What did you think? Yeah, I could see how that kind of would muddy the waters. Yeah, it it feels like it would have worked better if you just had always been. They had just established it or left it unknown how long he had been in this office, like if he'd been doing this his whole life and this is all he had ever known. That would make it even more 
satirical, more over the top with how a lot of people feel like they're just stuck in this dead end job and it feels like that's all they've ever done. They'll never get out of it. But I guess at the same time, it's almost tragic that he used to have what sounds like a more fulfilling job being heroic and fighting fires and doing something that he enjoyed. But yeah, it gets a little uh, murky where he you know, also quit that because he he started feeling sick and uh, I guess the trauma got to him and he started becoming a hypochondriac. And yeah, I just wasn't sure they really needed that whole backstory there. I just rather stuck with this office drone who's always done this and he's a hypochondriac. We don't, I don't think we really needed the firefighter backstory. Yeah, that was Shanley getting a little too Congo there. <laughs> Not making sense. Yeah. But he has a doctor's appointment because he feels bad and he always feels bad. And he gets some bad news. That bad news is he's got a brain cloud. He's got a brain cloud, man. I mean, we all know about brain clouds, right? The the dark <laughs> the dark mass of tissue between the hemispheres of your brain. <laughs> <laughs> he does not get a second opinion on this. Uh, he's told he has essentially with five or six months to live where he'll feel perfectly fine, but then his brain will just shut down and he will die. Right. And then, you know, if you have any savings, you could take a trip. No, I spent all my money on doctors, which I thought was a great little gag or just, again, a winking satire of just our modern age, like going along with the office drone themes and everything. Just, I don't know, it just seemed to really fit with the sad sackness of his life. Yeah, I spent all my money on doctors to find out that I'm going to die, but now I don't have any money to do anything with my life for the next six months, you know? Bummer. I didn't even notice that, but that's a nice catch there. Yeah. What kind of doctor's office is this, though? The settings, especially in the these early scenes, like the office and the factory that he's in, and then this doctor's office, like all this felt very strange and outlandish, but interesting. It just wasn't your typical run-of-the-mill stuff you would see. Yeah, because Robert Stack from Unsolved Mysteries isn't usually your doctor. Generally, if you went to a doctor's office and he's there, you say, oh, hell no, and you'd run away. (laughs) It's just a bad sign. Yeah, he's the Unsolved Mysteries guy, right? That's right. He doesn't have a TV in his apartment, so he doesn't know what he's getting into here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, this doctor's office... First, he walks in or you know, he wakes up, I guess. And he's like rubbing his eyes and he wakes up and realizes he's still in the waiting room. And it's got this weird white walls with like pegboard holes all in it. And the receptionist tells him, all right, uh, Joe, the doctor's ready to see you. There's like only two doors in the waiting room. So there's the exit and there's the door into the doctor's office. And he kind of looks around confused, like, which way do I go? Like, I know there's just a small moment that I thought was interesting where he's disoriented and again, kind of like the sameness of everything and like the white walls and everything, him not being able to tell which way he should go in this office. He's just thrown for a loop. But then you go into the doctor's office. This is the most like swank, lush doctor's office I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, there's no white walls here or a little table that you climb up on for the doctor to check you out the doctor it's like this wooden office he's got a library behind him and like a roaring fire in a fireplace and he's got these little library lamps and leather chairs and just really nice looking office so later on as we discover we can talk about this doctor again when we get further into the ending and the spoilers but he's not what he seems he's not what he seems yeah so that that might be a tip right there that's never really spelled out but yeah now that 
we've seen the film and know he's not what he seems. Okay. That might make a little bit more sense <laughs> but that why he has like this plush office. This doesn't look like a doctor's office at all. And Joe's reaction is great and really gives Tom Hanks perfect opportunity to be the best kind of comedic Tom Hanks, which is the give no F's Tom Hanks. Give so no he goes F's. back to the office and, Oh, we haven't mentioned Meg Ryan who, was she kind of the secretary in the office there? Yeah, she seemed like the secretary. or I mean, she has a typewriter that she's just banging away on. So she never appears to be doing anything other than that. But yeah, I guess you would assume in this early 90s office setting, she's the secretary, maybe, or the receptionist. I don't know. But yeah, she does something in the office, but it's not spelled out. This isn't really the Meg Ryan that we know from this time, of course. Meg Ryan is sort of the darling of the late 80s slash 90s. You know, she was in all these romantic comedies, and uh, America was in love with Meg America's Ryan. sweetheart, that's right. America's sweetheart. But she's not the Meg Ryan that we're used to in this scene at all. She's kind of got this wild uh, New York accent. Yeah, she's got this wig on. It's not supposed to be a wig. But, you know, it's kind of like she's got a mouse on top of her head. <laughs> right. And she's just not quite acting like the Meg Ryan we know. Which is weird because, you know, I saw Meg Ryan on the poster and in the trailer and she didn't look or sound like this. It's almost like she's going to pop up again later. Yeah. I mean, I guess the trailer makes it pretty obvious that in everything you I've read about the film before watching it that she was going to play three roles, you know, three different characters in Joe's life. So, yeah, this is our our first instance with her as Dee Dee, the the office worker who Joe has a thing for. Let's get into this scene because I feel like this is probably one of the best I quit speeches I've seen in a movie. It was so cathartic, funny. Yeah, just struck a chord with everything you ever wanted to say to a terrible boss and, you know, this kind of situation. You know, now that he knows that he's going to die in six months, like you said, he just doesn't give an F. It's kind of like, you know, a new lease on life. He can just, you know, live and do what he wants. Uh, it doesn't really matter anyway. He's going to die, right? So we just had that scene with Adea thoroughly chastising him. So we already hate him. That really set this up for us here where it's just Joe going off on him. He's just first he walks in and he grabs this fake arm, like this mannequin arm, and he just starts fiddling with things on Hidea's desk. And then he just starts slapping Hidea in the face with it, which was great. <laughs> But then he goes into the big speech, you know, about how this this is a terrible place and the coffee stinks and the lights are sucking the juice out of my eyes. And Tom Hanks is great in this because for most of the time he he underplays it. And, he, you know, he's just kind of like cool Tom Hanks. He's, he's not going to go like over the top crazy. But then he has those moments where he just kind of lets it out and goes a little absurd. So right here where he says the lights are sucking out the juice in his eyes, he he looks up at him and he just goes, suck, suck, suck. <laughs> just like <laughs> just like imagining them sucking the juice. If you like the Tom Hanks from the end of the Burbs where he's just freaking out because he thinks that he and his friends are terrible people and he wants to be arrested. And he's like, arrest me. And he jumps in the ambulance. It's a little like that. And also the Tom Hanks from A League of Their Own that keeps yelling at the kid who says his team is going to lose. And he gets really wacky there. It's very similar to that. It's one of my favorite Tom Hanks's of all the Tom Hanks personas. This may be the ultimate expression of that persona. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's such a cathartic moment and how quibbly and weak he was in the earlier scenes. And now all of a sudden he's just comes to life and it's just 
really enjoyable. I was cheering for him, like literally watching this movie. And, you know, how he goes on to say he sold his soul to Hedaya for 30 lousy bucks a week. And then how he grabs him by the collar. Like, this is unexpected because, you know, at first he's just like, all right, I need to say something. And he, and he kind of goes off. But, you know, the absurdity of this movie, I feel like there was multiple times where I was expecting it to go one way or just to be a, a certain way. And then it kind of twists it and goes in a different direction, which was really enjoyable. It didn't follow your standard rom-com formula or any or you know just any movie expectations it just dips into the absurd and maybe that's why i liked congo so much too and that's the <laughs> flair that shanley has i don't know you just reminded me of an important line that we skipped to earlier but before this before he goes to the doctor he walks he's sitting at his desk and his shoe is messed up and meg ryan asked him what's going on and he said i'm losing my soul Right. <laughs> yeah, as if we didn't get that from the opening shot of the soul coming off during the <laughs> I sold my soul to the company store song. Hey, you know, I, yeah. I didn't quite notice. Yeah, I did oh, okay. notice, but I liked it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I love how he grabs Hedaya by the collar, pushes him against the wall, and then he's, you know, he's talking about like, why did I put up with you all this time? You know, it was fear. I was just a chicken shit and too afraid to be myself, stand up to you. But then he, he even gets like really dark where he says, you're lucky I don't kill you, <laughs> but maybe you're not so lucky at that. What's worse than leaving you here? Then he leaves the office, comes back a moment later and then asks Dee Dee out for dinner that night. And she's just all aglow, like what a change. So yeah, it's just a, <laughs> my, yeah, definitely my favorite moment out of the, the whole movie that was these early scenes are just really sharp. Again, like a lot of charisma from Tom Hanks, like you said, just really channeling everything that he normally gives us right there into that just triumphant moment where he, he stands up to this horrible boss, something that we can all relate to in one way or the other. Yes, we've all had one. I think that's my second favorite moment of the movie. Nice. And then he goes on the date with Meg Ryan, and it's going incredibly. Yeah. It's going so well. They go back to one of their apartments. Was it his or hers? His, his apartment. His apartment. And it's going amazing. But then he says he's going to die in six months because she asks what's come over him. He's so alive. And right. as soon as she hears that, she is done. Right. Really good writing and good acting in that scene where she stops after she after he tells her that and she's thinking it through like she recoils from him. And then for a, a minute there, I'm wondering, OK, how is she going to react to this? And I love the line where she says, sorry, I, I can't handle it. He's on top of the world right now. He's just like, I'm full of life. Nothing could be better. And he just wants to go out with a bang. But obviously, she doesn't want to invest her heart in this guy who's just going to leave her in just a few months time. She couldn't handle the pain of the loss. So, you know, I just thought that was a really kind of sad moment, but telling too, where you know, I was reading this tour uh, tor.com tore our article is uh, the untimely philosophy of Joe versus the volcano really in-depth writers look at her experience with this movie and some of the philosophy behind it and everything but one question she asked in there was how rewashing it she wanted to ask well was Didi a jerk for not going with Joe at this point you know like the guy's about to die let's just live a little and send him off with a bang you know no pun intended then she also wanted to ask, nice well, one. yeah, kudos. 
No, Kudos. yeah, that was that was all my own. wasn't in the article, by the way. It's v- very good, very good. Yeah, but that is a lot to throw onto someone when you're making out with them. That oh yeah, I'm gonna die. Right, right. Months. So you know maybe it was Joe being the jerk. Oh yeah, I'm gonna throw this at you as we're about to get hot and heavy. But also maybe just he was a jerk in general for asking her out from the beginning, knowing he's about to die. So it's like. Oh, you're going to get involved romantically with this person and get them all entangled in your life when you know they don't have a future with you. Interesting questions to bring up there. But yeah, I just liked the writing there gave her a moment to say, I can't handle it and wasn't what you might often see in a a romantic comedy here. And then she basically just leaves the movie, right? Which I was sad to see. I, I like that version of Meg Ryan. You know, spoiler, I think that was probably my favorite version of her in this film. So it wasn't mine, but that's yeah, cool. Sad to see her leaves. Uh, and, and there's other reasons that I'll get to later why that is, but sad to see that relationship fall apart so quickly right there. But, you know, it does kind of tie into the themes of the film and, you know, kind of the philosophy of the film. So. Yeah, uh, it was smart for her to to say that and for the writing to go there. Uh, it felt like it was a realistic turn for her her to just back out and say, like, I can't deal with this, you know. So, yeah, interesting moment. Not something you'd often see in a romantic comedy. Or at least they would go back to her character later and they would, you know, make amends or figure some way to, to make it work or whatever. Yeah, and that doesn't happen. Instead, we go from that to the next morning. And I love just the chill vibe of Hank sitting there playing his ukulele softly. And then he gets a visitor. And it's the only scene he's in, which is kind of crazy with the particular actors who only have one scene in this movie. We have Robert Stack before. Now we have Lloyd Bridges as Grant... Graynamore? Grant? Graynamore, yeah. Yeah, it's G-R-A-Y-N-A-M-O-R-E. I wonder if anyone has that last name in real life. <laughs> it's uh, I dig it. But he comes in and he makes a proposal. He's just so good in the scene. And I mean, it's it's Lloyd freaking Bridges and uh, he's just chewing it up and he's just so enthusiastic and over the top, you know, and just doing his best. But yeah, he shows up and he has this proposal that uh, he wants them to jump into a volcano. <laughs> Apparently there's an <laughs> island where the Waponi tribe lives and well they need to appease their angry fiery god with a free will sacrifice of a human someone who will willingly jump into a volcano and Bridges needs the mineral rights to some precious mineral called Bubaru or Bubaru uh, that's on their island and they'll I think give he it He says it both ways <laughs> probably so yeah <laughs> They'll give it to him if he can find this sacrifice. And they're also really into orange soda for some reason. But he'll give Joe all these credit cards so he can live it up and then go out like a hero. And it's really absurd. And I feel like if anyone other than Bridges was in this role, it would just really fall flat. But the dude I is just so excited. attacking the wall with his cane <laughs> and telling Joe that he right. lives in a dump. Yeah. And you notice that this is a good point to stop and talk about, I guess, the motif of this crooked road that's all throughout the film. Yes, a jagged lightning bolt looking road. Foreshadowing. I guess you could say it's a jagged lightning bolt. Well, there's definitely a jagged lightning bolt in the movie. But <laughs> at the beginning, we see the the this kind of crooked road up at the factory where they're all walking into. I guess you call it a factory. It, it has smokestacks. It looks like a factory, right? <laughs> um, so, the, yeah, you've got that symbol there. And it's also the symbol for the company itself. And he's also got this jagged lightning bolt road thing on his wall 
or like there's pieces of his wall ripped out to where it forms this jagged bolt. So yeah, that, that kind of struck my attention. I was like, okay, let's look out for that to, you know, see it all throughout the film. And I, I definitely like how they pepper that in throughout, which was fun. Yeah, it was cool. You notice the sidewalk at the beginning that it just kind of looks weird, but I love how often it reoccurs to where it's fun to look for. How much did you love, or maybe you didn't, and just I love how Tom Hanks says, I'll do it. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, where <laughs> he, he gets this absurd proposal. It's like, what do you say? Will you do it? And he picks up the credit card and he starts to kind of gaze at it and he's looking around his apartment. I was expecting him to say some sort of snappy one-liner, like, how much you got? Or, you know, like, how much credit is on here or whatever. But instead, he's just like, yeah, I'll do it. I'm pretty sure that tour article I was talking about compared it to someone saying they'd go to the store to pick up beer. You know, it's just like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Like, I'll do it. (laughs) You need Oreos? I'll go get some. Yeah, yeah. Double stuffed? All right. Really, this movie would not work without Tom Hanks in the lead. There's so much stuff here that I feel like only he could sell. For sure. I feel like, yeah, out of all the players here, I'll get into my issues with Meg Ryan. I mean, I think she's lovely. She could be fine. I think the writing for her characters is probably the weakest of the bunch. But yeah, Tom Hanks, especially the early stuff with him, the first act, I was really into just my favorite part of the film. But yeah, I agree. I don't think anybody else could pull this off uh, in 1990. He was the perfect choice for this film. I'd love to see him do it now. (laughs) Yeah, right. Oh, dude, that would be awesome. Just see him go back as old Joe. Like, what what happened between you and Meg Ryan? I mean, our nostalgia culture would just eat that up, right? Where's Joe at now, you know? Maybe Patrick uh, Shanley's got it in him. I don't know. I hope he does. Everyone's doing all these crazy table readings and stuff now. Why not Joe versus the Volcano? It's not going to happen. Yeah. The, they, the other stuff they were in was too popular. People are going to want that. Yeah, they're going to want the You've Got Mail too, or something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You've Got Spam. But yeah, so you move on to the scene with the limo driver, and he's asking him where he wants to go. Joe doesn't know where he wants to go. He just wants clothes. The driver starts schooling him on, I'm just paid to drive the car, not to tell you who you are. Oh, by the way, the driver is Ozzie Davis. Yeah. <laughs> Again, he's it's one sequence that he's in and that's it. Yeah, and he's so good. He's so he's good in this. He's it's it's just really fun. And, you know, again, to call back to the tour article I read, not my own thoughts, just spewing off of that here. They brought up how this is, it seems to to this author of the article, at least, that perhaps Shanley is uh, subverting the magical Negro trope here, where Joe's looking to him for advice and for wisdom and for for clothes, yeah, but it's a more of a metaphor for, you know, who he is and who he wants to be as a man now that he's kind of freed his life and he's discovering himself and everything. Marshall, the limo driver played by Ozzy Davis, is just not having it at first, you know. I like, love that. Yeah, he's that just was, not he having it. He stops the car. He's right. Like, no, I'm not doing this. No, no, no. They don't they don't pay me for that. They pay me to drive the car. But yeah, <laughs> the dialogue here is just really sharp and you know, just the right amount of quirk too, where it wasn't over the top, it was just the right amount where he says, hold on, I'm coming back. <laughs> so he gets out of the car. He goes in the back of the car and sits with him. 
I thought that was great. Joe runs through the itinerary of what he's going to do. He doesn't tell him that he's going to die or anything. You know, that gives Marshall, the driver, an idea. Okay, this is what you need then. And so he he relents and goes along with him on the shopping montage. One of the best shopping montages, too, from like the 80s or 90s. Uh, I love where they go and get the Armani tuxes. And Joe says, I feel like I'm getting married. And Marshall (laughs) says, I feel like I'm giving you away. (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> so good. They're just standing there, both in the Texas. Hanks loses the mullet, which is a, a great turn for the film. You know, it just got better right there. All of a sudden, just chopping that bad boy off at the back. He just and he just looks so terrible, man. But all all of a sudden, he emerges from the hair salon as that Tom Hanks we all know. This hair hat combo at the beginning of the movie, where he looks like. Bono from the oh. Joshua Tree era, which is like the best musical era of U2 and the worst that they looked. Bono looked ridiculous then. He's got that kind of almost shoulder length messy hair and just this weird goofy hat, which thankfully he gets rid of because I don't know if I could take this movie if he looked like that the whole time. Yeah, at one point he just throws his hat in the trash can. There's multiple scenes where he just throws away perfectly good hats. <laughs> I don't know how <laughs> we're supposed to. He throws one f- in the ocean. Yeah, he throws one in the ocean. I was like, how are we supposed to feel about this character? He's just throwing away good hats. And then he's just revealing the terrible hair before he gets the haircut. So he's like, no, dude, keep the hat on. You look much better with the fedora or whatever he's got. <laughs> but, you know, just throw it in the trash can. But, yeah, th- this takes a turn after this shopping montage where we kind of get into some of the themes I think that this film is trying to expose because, you know, obviously in the beginning we have this whole critique of capitalistic society where he's just a slave to this job that he hates and everything. And, you know, that he's selling his soul for 300 bucks a week. And then now he's literally selling his life, the rest of his life to Lloyd Bridges to go jump into a volcano. Right. So he's still, he's still like giving himself away to, to have money in his life. But then uh, I like the scene where Marshall, he's going to the hotel and he asked Marshall if he'd come and have dinner with him. And Marshall's like, no, I've got a wife and kids I got to go home to. You know, don't you have anybody? No, you know, he's all alone. But then he's got this great line, too, where he says, I guess there are times in life that you're not supposed to have anyone. Some doors you have to go through alone. I was like, oh, man, this is a really thoughtful reflection for this romantic comedy. (laughs) It really was. And then he eats in his awesome hotel room by himself. Mm -hmm. I think it's Elvis's version of Blue Moon playing. It's again, it reminded me of the ukulele part. It's just got a lot of space. It's really chill. It's not rushed through. On a sensory level, I really enjoyed it. And on a deeper level, I enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, the, there's a deep level here, too, where he's all alone. He's surrounded by all these things that he's just bought. He's got all this money and this new freedom in his life, but he's got nobody to spend it with, and he needs someone to share it with. And but there's this shot where he's just kind of laying in bed at night after the end of the day, and it's a subtle touch, but I feel like this whole turn is pointing out like the empty emptiness of materialism you know he's got all this stuff now but he's still got to get ready to die and this hasn't like solved his problems or anything so yeah i was excited to see all these themes early on in this film like critiquing that kind of culture 
especially in 90, you know, like you think about a lot of the 80s movies where you've got montages of, again, the tour article talks about Pretty Woman and how like, you know, the climactic moment of that movie is her going on this shopping spree and how it basically solves all her problems. But here, unlike many of 80s films where the workplace was just kind of this light and happy thing that you did on the side, you know, like if you think about where and when Harry met Sally, it doesn't ever seem like they're working more than like 10 hours a week in that movie. They're all just kind of like <laughs> hanging out and doing whatever they want and eating in coffee yeah, shops true. and stuff. But here it's more akin to the later 90s where you get stuff like Office Space or Fight Club that's really picking apart that office drone culture. Yeah, it's exciting to see that as early as 1990. Like After Hours. Like yeah. the beginning of After Hours and the end of After Hours. Yeah, that too, for sure. And I have to mention my favorite line from the entire movie. He's outfitting for the trip, and he goes to this luggage store. He buys four huge waterproof cases. Steamer trunks, yeah. God, that phrase feels so good. Yeah. So good. Steamer trunk. But... <laughs> when he buys them from the salesman, the salesman tells him, may you live to be a thousand years old, sir. Yeah, that that luggage salesman was very into his job, you know, very different <laughs> from how Tom Hanks felt about his work. He's obviously he very, was very fulfilled. Yes, he's selling that luggage. Yes, I think w he has some line about that, too, where like he just lives and breathes luggage like that's his that's his uh <laughs> His modus operandi. I wish I liked luggage that much. Right. It's so expensive, but it's not exciting at all. I got some as a wedding gift almost 14 years ago, and I was just like, oh, that's all cool. Right. Yeah. My wife was like, you do realize how much this stuff costs, right? Like, we're going to have to use this for the next decade. And <laughs> well, we're still using it. <laughs> well, maybe if you <laughs> had a steamer after. trunk, maybe if you had four steamer trunks strapped to the top of your limo, you'd feel better about it. <laughs> I need a bigger house to fit my steamer trucks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we, we should also mention, because we'll come back to this later, too. During his montage, he buys what seems like just random crap to fill his luggage with. But he's got a little mini golf course that he can practice putting on. He buys that. He buys a violin case with a mini bar inside of it. He buys a giant umbrella. So, yeah, he's just uh, got some random random stuff. But I like how the script comes back to these little details later when we're out on the ocean. So He outfits up in different meanings of the word, you know, because he gets outfits and he outfits himself for the trip with the goods he needs. And then he goes to Los Angeles where he's picked up by, drumroll, Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan again. Yeah. Uh, we should also <laughs> this mention... This my least favorite of the three. Yeah, mine too. Mine too. I just want to mention real quick to Ozzy Davis's line where after he gets the haircut and he gets the new suit and everything, he says, yeah, you're coming into focus now, which is, is different than just like, oh, you're, you've been m made into a new person or, oh, all, you know, all your problems are solved or whatever. But it's just like, yeah, you're, <laughs> you're kind of deciding who you want to be. You're, you're becoming more like you. It's just um, all throughout this movie. So... But yeah, moving on to L.A. where he flies to meet Meg Ryan, my least favorite version of of her in this so film. So this is one of the two daughters we're introduced to in the movie that are, I, mean, I can't say it, Graynamore. Graynamore. Lloyd Bridges' character's daughter. Right. Who uh, apparently Graynamore is only interested in money, so his daughters are very neglected and have a lot of issues because of that, and we're in L.A., which I don't know if you've been to L.A., dude, and I don't want to insult anyone who lives there, but there's some 
plasticity in L.A. <laughs> well, um, yeah. There's some fakeness, and the movie definitely comments on that as much as possible For sure. in these scenes. They're driving in her convertible, and she says, you know, he says, I've never been to L.A. And she goes, how do you like it? And he goes, it looks fake. I like it. <laughs> like, which is just such a weird line. It looks fake. I like it. But then she says, this is a great town. It stinks, but it's a great town. <laughs> yeah. Really, she says, this is a great town, but it stinks. Right. It's great. It's great though. She has this really exaggerated. If you've seen the Californian skit on SNL where they do these ridiculously heightened LA accents, mm-hmm. that's what she goes for here. But she goes past that. Oh yeah, to where it's really off-putting. She almost reminded me of Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard with the cigarette hanging out of her mouth and the big glasses and just this exaggerated, <laughs> like almost like old Hollywood. Yes, darling. You know, like just. She's this flighty socialite kind of just, yeah, she's really going for broke in this role, but I felt like maybe it was a little bit beyond Meg Ryan's powers in 1990. Just uh, didn't quite work for me. And like you said, got a bit grating and annoying after a while. Well, there's probably more layers to this. This is Dee Dee, right? No, no, no. This is uh, Angelica. Angelica? Dee Dee was the office girl and this is Angelica, the daughter. Angelica. Yes, my bad. I got my Meg Ryans mixed up. Yeah, so this Angelica has several layers because she has this crazy accent and she's supposed to be this painter and this poet. (laughs) And then we find out her painting is only hanging in a restaurant because her dad owns it. And she actually hates herself and she wants to die. Yeah. And there's a moment where she gets very vulnerable where just for a second the accent fades away. We find out maybe that was just an affectation. It's only for a second that it drops. But I agree with you. I think Meg Ryan is a good actress and I think she's good at other moments of this movie, but this just doesn't work. I feel like the writing here fails for her too because Agreed, agreed. I yeah. wasn't quite sure what they were going for with her character, how yeah, she's really exaggerated and over the top one minute. She recites this poem to him, and as soon as she's done, she goes, Do you want me to read it to you again? <laughs> And then you could almost see a little laugh on her face as she's trying to get through that because it's just so absurd. How did you forget long ago the delicate tangles of his hair covered the emptiness of my hand? There you go. You got it. it. (laughs) Because she said it twice. It stuck in your brain. I believe it's the only poem that she's ever written. Probably so. (laughs) It's like the one go-to poem that she has in her bag that she just recites over and over again (laughs) to everybody she meets. But no, it goes from that absurd moment to all of a sudden she's confessing how she's suicidal and, you know, she's this grown woman who lives on her father's money. I know it just came out of nowhere and I didn't feel like it was properly developed, didn't fit with the absurdity of her accent or like the over the top goofiness of her character in general. It was trying to do what this movie is trying to do, which is combine these fantastical, whimsical, absurd, satirical ideas with these more deeper emotional moments and revelations. And I was trying to do that in one scene with this one character we've only seen for a moment. And it just didn't work for me. It needed more time. And I feel like that's the problem with the Meg Ryan characters in general in this movie is... It's a neat gag that she's playing three different people. But in the end, I kind of would have just preferred her to have been one person that they developed into a well-rounded character throughout the film instead of just getting these bits and pieces of caricatures. So Agreed, yeah. Someone posited a theory that 
there's a subtle Wizard of Oz thing going on here yeah. where one of them is the Scarecrow, one of them is the Cowardly Lion, and the other one is the other dude from uh, the Wizard of Oz. I can't remember. The, right ten, <laughs> the Tin Man. <laughs> the Tin Man. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see a parallel there? You think that person is just reaching? Mm. I mean, I agree with you before I you even say anything. I think I would have preferred one character, too. I, yeah, I read that, too, and I could see that to a degree. I don't know if I have the headspace right now to dissect. Okay, which one was she? I guess the... Angelica would have been the cowardly lion because she's like afraid to live. And he's telling her, you know, it's none of your business. Life will take care of itself, even though he himself is also going to go jump into a volcano. So (laughs) he's one to talk. He's one to talk. Right. Even though he thinks he is going to die anyway. So he's kind of taking control of his death there. If we want to go philosophical again, like we did for Alien 3. Yeah, don't don't, don't go there. He's going to die. Now he's choosing his death, even though we later find out. Things aren't what they see. Right, right. Well, I don't know. Just the whole thing didn't click for me where after that, they drive back to the hotel and she's like, oh, can I, you know, you want me to come up with you? And she's looking for some intimacy, obviously, and he turns her down. I don't know. And then he goes, sits on the beach and wakes up the next day. I don't know. And then the next moment they're they're driving to the yacht where she kind of hands them off to the next sister and we never see her again. So just didn't feel like those moments led to anything or gave me any deeper themes about the movie or, or were well-rounded in any way. Yeah, I get they're going like he's going for the kind of episodic journey where he meets these different characters. But I felt like I needed more like of, of a button on that relationship and they went for it, but it just didn't work. Yeah, I agree. I thought that parts of the Meg Ryan characters worked, but hers being so abrupt where it did feel like maybe they could have brought some different things out of each other with more time. It just ends. And then we get her sister, which is the next and final Meg Ryan. And really this is the Meg Ryan that we probably or I expected right. before I had seen the movie because it's just kind of the typical Meg Ryan where it just looks like her. The She's blonde. Got her blonde hair. Yeah. That's right. The more typical Meg Ryan hairdo, her voice without an accent, which the other two had very strong accents. And she's kind of more acting like a Meg Ryan character from a Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan movie. Yeah. She's mean to him at first. What is she? She calls him a name. What does she call him? She's calling it's him not, Patrick. It's not or Joe. Yeah. I think she's calling him Patrick. Is that a nod to the director? <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Maybe so. If she is calling him Patrick. <laughs> if I remember funny. that correctly. <laughs> she's not just calling him Donnie or something. Like, I definitely didn't like the Angelica Meg Ryan, but this one didn't really do it for me. And especially that this is our final Meg Ryan and the one that he, quote unquote, falls in love with and they bond with uh, on the yacht and everything. Um, again, she just wasn't very developed. She's mean to him at first for like two seconds And then she reads him this whole encyclopedia entry about the island where they're going, which is just strange. I guess you get a lot of details about the Wapani tribe there. But she has these long monologues uh, at at different parts that just didn't work for me. I was just kind of like, all right, just stop talking now, please. He's trying to go to sleep in the next scene and she just keeps talking to him. And they almost look like that she wants to jump in bed with him for no reason. Like she just met this guy. Well, they have that Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan chemistry. That's right. It's just immediate. It's I guess you have to suspend your disbelief there because it's Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. Yeah. They don't get together in that moment. Yeah. Did that work for you at all? Honestly, 
I didn't really have a problem with this one. Yeah, we could have got more depth, but I felt like I actually understood her and she made sense as a human. Unlike her other sister, she's really tried to be independent from her father. She's kind of had some success with that, but she gets tempted because he offers her the boat, which she's always wanted, if she helps Joe out here. So she does it, and then she's let herself down. And I found that pretty relatable, and I thought she was pretty cohesive throughout the rest of the movie. I mean, again, Joe gets the best writing by far. I do think the Meg Ryans get shorted compared to him, but I didn't really have any problems with this one. And I enjoyed their scenes together, kind of having hijinks on the boat before the big storm comes. I feel like if they had presented her backstory and her character's motivations in a different way, again, just felt like I needed more time to get to know her character. But they presented with this long monologue where she just kind of confesses her heart to um as he's about to go to bed for just kind of out of nowhere again, like just like the other characters were just like, Oh, here's my soul. Like I'm a soul sick human being and I've got these daddy issues and everything. I don't know. It's just, I, I wanted some more like natural conversation to, to develop between them. And uh, we just got something that was just a little off putting or, or weird that maybe it was Because of that, I can never really buy into her character or their romance. It didn't bother me to a huge degree, but it's definitely like, hey, we just met. Here's my life story and I'm developed now. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's like, here's my life story and now let's move on with the action. We got that good love. Was it good love and playing where they're fishing? Yeah. he catches. Oh yeah! I'll never forget the scene where he catches the hammerhead shark because oh, for some reason so when I was younger funny. I thought that was hilarious and it's really goofy and campy and fake looking and over the top. Yeah. But as a ten year old, I don't know why that had me rolling around. Oh yeah, I love that because again another expectation subverted where I'm thinking you know she's it's got this whole scene where she's catching a bunch of the fish and he's not and you know really to be honest is just little moments like that where it was kind of dull like there was a lot of montages that felt like went on for a while that just didn't grab my attention, especially compared to the beginning. So that was one where it was like not really digging the good loving montage where they're fishing. But then at the end where he's got something, he's catched something on his line and I'm thinking, oh, they're going to go with like classic. He pulls in a boot or something like it's not really a good <laughs> fish or whatever. But then all of a sudden it's just this big, huge hammerhead shark that looks super fake and it's baring its teeth and they run away and then that's the whole scene and it roars too like a lion you know which sharks do right yeah it's ridiculous yeah i love that they just kind of insert that moment of ridiculousness there so that was fun and then the ship sinks (laughs) yep then there's a, a storm i think it's kind of subtle here that maybe she's not the best sailor and maybe maybe sailing a boat actually isn't her thing because she pretty much takes the boat straight into the storm <laughs> and gets everyone but herself and tom hanks killed yeah it's a typhoon right yeah and just they've got that wicked shot where they're like all right we're heading into a typhoon and all of a sudden everything's green there's this mist everywhere Really crazy impressionistic lighting here, yeah. which I dug. Which I dug, too. Because this is supposed to be a fairy tale. We left out the once upon a time thing at the beginning. That's true. Which is going to have closure to that at the end of the movie, which we'll get to. Yeah. But this is kind of posited as a sort of fairy tale. They kiss. Hey, there you go, Jordan. They kiss. Oh, thank you. But their kiss gets interrupted by the masts getting swung over by the wind and hitting her in the head. Ah, right. She falls in the water. He dives in to save her. The yacht gets struck by lightning. It's that same weird lightning-shaped crooked path 
yeah. that we've seen throughout the movie. And it sinks the boat. Everyone dies but the two of them. He gets her onto the steamer trunk raft that he constructs. And then she's out cold for days. And he's just kind of by himself yeah. on the raft, which these are some of my favorite scenes in the movie. Some pre-Castaway vibes going on here, huh? He's stranded out on the ocean. This is like his castaway audition tape <laughs> yeah for sure and <laughs> i thought these were some pretty sublime scenes yeah we got him you know playing his ukulele and singing yeah unconscious meg ryan that he constructs a little tent over to protect her from the sun she's like his wilson you know she is like his wilson <laughs> yeah he's like giving her the water and not drinking it himself and he's kind of starting to lose it. You know, he's getting sunburnt. He starts seeing the actual shapes of the constellations, which we all know the constellations aren't actually shaped like those things. It's a bunch of garbage. <laughs> One of the biggest disappointments in my youth is realizing that all of the constellations aren't really shaped like horses and crabs and stuff. It's just a jumble of stars. Wait a minute. That's not a bear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not an Ursa major or a minor. It's nothing. <laughs> it's just a bunch of lines. But yeah, that was a cool shot where you see the actual animals in the sky yeah definitely so we're we're entering more surreal territory he's sort of losing it and then one night the moon rises and this is obviously the scene i remember the most from when i was a kid and i think it was probably my favorite scene then just because of how beautiful it is this moon rises mega ryan is unconscious so it's just tom hanks in the moon he's already pretty much on his knees and he kind of offers up this this really deep statement. I think it's my favorite moment of the film. It's almost like a prayer or a mantra. He says, Dear God, whose name I do not know, thank you for my life. And for me, it was a really powerful moment. Yeah. I loved it. I loved it. That really elevated the movie for me because it kind of brings together the themes of the movie. The movie has other flaws, but I do think the whole appreciating and living your life to the fullest type thing and owning your life, I think it does some cool stuff with that. For sure. And for me, it really peaked at this moment, which I thought was pretty beautiful because it whether that gigantic moon is really there and that big or not doesn't matter. He's experiencing it. He's appreciating it. Right. Which... It's kind of what he's wanted this whole time. Like that lamp that he had on his desk, it's a prophetic lamp because everything that's on the lamp, all those visuals come to pass in the film. But then he passes out. As soon as he has this moment, he crashes and then he gets woken up by Meg Ryan, who's now conscious. Yeah, I really appreciated that moment too. Just the thankfulness for life and appreciation that he comes to. And again, you don't see that quite often in a film, especially nowadays. But uh, yeah, it was refreshing to see just the thankfulness that he came to, that he's not asking for anything, that he's not begging, but he's just, okay, I thought I was going to die in six months. Then I thought I was going to die in 20 days, and now I'm about to die from dehydration. But the smaller amount of time that he has on the earth makes him more and more appreciative of his life and being willing and just able to let go of that life and just accept death. That acceptance that he comes to, I think, is a key theme the film is trying to come at, is just accepting death and not trying to control when you die or how you die or control your life, so to speak, but just accepting your life and appreciating it for what it is. So, yeah, that was pretty transcendent. It's like it's the first moment in his life that he's been able to do that. So pretty cool. And then he's back with Meg Ryan. It's daytime. He's all dehydrated and sunburnt. She tries to get him water. He says, no, that's for you. I loved his (laughs) his woozy voice. But surprise, 
they're at the island, our favorite trope, you know, where you're unconscious in the ocean and then you wake up and you're <laughs> yeah. where you were headed all along. Works over. Didn't they do that in Cutthroat Island? We talked about they that. They sure did yeah. in the incredible Cutthroat Island. Right. <laughs> My favorite terrible movie. And, okay, so here's a detail that I didn't mention before, but I'm going to mention now. When we learn about this island, we find that the people who populate it are descended from a Roman ship full of Jews and Druids. <laughs> right, right. That have formed a new culture here. They joined with, there. Were, I think there were a few Polynesians on the island, and then all these people from this ship that formed their own special culture. And to follow through on that, they're greeted by all these natives in sort of stereotypical Polynesian garb. Yeah. Singing <laughs> Avanagila. <laughs> Right. Which I thought was great. Uh, I enjoyed that. I know you didn't, but yeah. I thought that they kind of threw themselves got a lifeboat there where, look, we can do ridiculous, stereotypical, crazy native stuff. If we say that, hey, these aren't actually islanders, they're, they're half Jewish, half Irish people who like to drink Fanta. So they sing Ava Nagila, then they sing When Johnny Comes Marching Home Again, which was written by an Irishman. So I enjoyed that callback to earlier. I mean, it's really over the top and goofy, but I laughed. Yeah, I, I liked that they had the soda cans on the necklace, on the tribal necklace, like crushed against <laughs> their chests and stuff. They really love Fanta. I must have missed that they were like some combination of Roman, Druid, Jews, and Polynesians. Yes. Which again, it's completely ahistorical, you know. Right. Europeans didn't make it to this area because they said it happened 1800 years ago in like 200 BC, which is impossible. It's more anachronistic but that just made it more ridiculous and funny to me that that's what they were that must have been in the encyclopedia entry like the whole it was you should have paid attention dude it paid off i just started zoning out there and then when we got to the natives i was like oh this is racist <laughs> you know it's like no no it, is... i think it was kind of mocking that oh. by making them this mix of cultures that never existed in this area yeah where it's just they can kind of, because look, man, I mean, the head guy's played by Abe Vigoda. Right, you know? Abe Vigoda's the chief <laughs> and Nathan Lane's like one of the <laughs> tribal members. I don't know. Yeah, I didn't feel like they were making fun of any like minority culture. Ah. It, it's just totally ridiculous. It, it gets awful close, even if that they were going for something different there. It, it still rang full of a lot of those stereotypes that you see in movies of these native islanders. Uh, so I don't know. It, it was kind of rough to watch. Even now, knowing that they were supposed to be this mixed bag of Romans and Jews and Druids and everything, it's still... No, just, it was a Roman ship, but it was just Jews and Druids. There were no Italians on this boat. They're kind of still playing with the stereotypical native idea, so, I don't know, it still feels a little icky, even with all that backstory in there. Hey, they like orange soda, and that's funny. <laughs> 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 just look how like goofy and stupid these islanders are they love orange soda yeah. <laughs> thanks a lot jordan you just took all the fun out of that part but you know uh, joe's here for more serious <laughs> business he needs to jump in a freaking he's here volcano. to die yeah. yeah meg ryan who he's known for like a few days all of a sudden professes her love and doesn't want him to die and he loves her too, but dang it, the timing just stinks. I gotta go jump in this volcano. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like, again, this is just very underdeveloped. I didn't buy the love profession here. Again, uh, maybe if they had made her one character and they had a relationship throughout with some ups and downs and some time spent together, but 
really, we've seen them have two conversations and they kissed <laughs> and they, you know, he did kind of self-sacrifice himself for her to live because he gave her the mineral water out of his mini bar or whatever. And so he could go and have <laughs> delirious epiphanies about God and the moon. But still, I don't know. She's just like, oh, I love you. I realize I love you more than anybody I've ever met, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. Yeah, it definitely did that really quick movie thing. For yeah. sure. Yep. I'll give you that. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. But then they get married. <laughs> so the chief, uh, she wants to get married. And this is kind of clever where he's like, I don't want to get married. And she's like, what? You can't commit to 30 seconds. You're about to die. So he's like, okay. And the chief marries them. He's about to Chief die anyway. Chief Abe Vigoda marries <laughs> Chief them. Abe Vigoda, yeah. But then she decides to jump in the volcano too. How did, how did that work for you? Just all of a sudden, she's going to leap into the volcano as well? Yeah, why not? Why not? I, I bought it. <laughs> she's at the end of her life too. I mean, how is she going to get <laughs> home anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. But then, you know, to keep with the absurdist bent of this movie, when they jump in the volcano and, you know, they hesitate for a long time, finally jump in together holding hands, it spits them right back out. <laughs> There's this gust of hot air as it's erupting. It sends them flying out in the ocean. The island then sinks with the volcano. And I'm guessing the whole race of these people have just died. But there's no attention paid to that whatsoever. Why is no one swimming in the water, like, you know, hugging their children? Our Hebrew druids have all passed away. I guess they never learned how to swim. I don't know. That is another interesting thing, too, right? Because they come up with this idea that they have to ha sacrifice someone to the volcano so that their culture can continue. Mm -hmm. But they're all too cowardly to follow through on this thing that they themselves have come up with. Yeah. Which is why the volcano punishes them. Right. They've been penetrated by the far reaches of capitalism, right? They've got this absurd obsession with the uh, orange soda. They don't want to let go of that for some reason. I don't know. Yeah, I just thought, yeah, the orange soda thing is goofy, but it does kind of tie into those capitalistic themes there. And nobody... Fancy equals capitalism. Yeah, that's right. And nobody wants to give up their life. You know, why Why would you jump in a volcano and you can just drink orange soda for the rest of your days? <laughs> but so, yeah, that is kind of like a what? A gotcha or a payback for not offering up one of their own. Joe does so willingly and then gets rewarded i guess in a way by the miracle of him being spit out of the volcano which i didn't mind and they so say much in the movie that it's a miracle right they say it's a miracle and i didn't mind that so much it was goofy but it's kind of like all right where's this gonna go how's this gonna end you know is he really gonna die i don't think that's gonna be satisfying if he does so interesting twist there but yeah i just thought it was kind of hilarious that this whole race of people are wiped out and there's just no mention of it the the tweedledee ship sank and all their crew are dead the wapani are dead but you know tom hanks and meg ryan are alive so we're good how many people have to die to serve this romance that's right it's the darkest romantic comedy you've ever seen <laughs> oh sacrifice to their romance yeah so thankfully the steamer trunks are still around right still all powerful and like the boomerang of the movie they come right back yeah they make another boat out of that and then we get kind of the twist of the movie yeah I forgot about the twist, actually. Joe actually wasn't dying this whole time. The doctor, Robert Stack, was working for Lloyd Bridges. 
they found out that they had this hypochondriac guy that they could just lie to and he would believe it and not get a second opinion. And they tricked Joe into going here. He's fine. Meg Ryan figures it out when he mentions the name of his doctor. I'm pretty sure she figured it out soon as he said, I have a brain cloud. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you didn't get a second opinion. Someone told you you have a brain cloud <laughs> and you didn't go to another doctor. But I guess he didn't have any money left. Spent all his money on these doctors and he's a hypochondriac anyway. So he's just going to believe yeah. whatever they tell but him. But then of course, Mr. Negative here, it's not good enough that now he and Meg Ryan can be together and have their little boat steamer trunk honeymoon. He's got to be all negative and say, well, we're still lost at sea. Everything's not actually that great. Yeah, he kind of turns back into his old self right there, right? Which is kind of disappointing. Like, he starts yeah, uh, scratching at his throat. Then we see that he needs Meg Ryan's character. They need each other, right? True. He helps bring out her bravery, and she helps him stay, uh, stay grounded, stay positive. Because then he's like, yeah, actually, yeah, that's right. I forgot. I learned all these lessons. And now I'm I'm happy and yeah. positive about my life. You got your whole life ahead of you. Good. Yeah. You know what? I actually thought it was pretty deep where it could just be like sentimental that it ends with the they lived happily ever after thing, mm-hmm. you know, to, to fulfill the, the fairy tale, the, the words come up in the fantasy script on screen. But if you really think about it, they could just live happily ever after for like two more days. Another storm could come and, and kill them, but it would have been two happy days that they had together. So I don't know. It kind of made me think of the end. You know, little depth to this movie yeah. with all its problems. A lot of, maybe a lot of depth. You know, we've got the ocean. The Pacific's like seven miles deep in places. You know, maybe there's more here. Oh, yeah. I think there is. What are the ending lines? You've got her saying, where are we going to end up? And he says, away from the things of man away from the things of man, to go along with our anti-capitalistic, anti-materialism themes we've had throughout the movie. So yeah, I definitely think there's more going on here than just your average Joe. Average Joe, yeah, got it. Nice pun, yeah, Yeah, nice pun. I think this John Patrick Shanley guy, he might be a playwright. Maybe he's got a a future in writing some plays, you know, (laughs) which I'm kidding here. Obviously, he has written plays, and there are some scenes in this movie where the dialogue goes on where it's like a play, you know, the way that it's so dialogue driven at moments and you have kind of like obvious sets, you know, like sometimes when they're out in the ocean where there's definitely that element of the film as well. Right. Uh, they've also got to rectify with the fact that he's now married, even though he didn't want to be. So they've got to make this relationship <laughs> last longer than the 30 seconds he planned on. And his father-in-law <laughs> apparently tried to murder him. So. <laughs> Oh, good point, Jordan. Didn't think about that. Again, good the tour point. article. Got to give it credit. <laughs> oh, man. Did you even watch the movie? I didn't watch the movie. I just read the Wikipedia and read that tour article. I'm good. I knew everything I needed oh, to know. Oh, man. No. Yeah, well, if they're away from the things of man, then, you know, maybe they'll end up on some island. They'll never have to see her awful daddy. You know, Lloyd Bridges won't be able to cause any more mayhem in their life. Maybe so. Maybe so. They'll just maybe live so. out there on some random jungle island. Meet another yeah. tribe that they happen to kill and wipe out there will be no one left on earth but them because everyone must die for their romance by the end they will be away from the things of man because everyone will have died but them. i want to see a tom hanks and meg ryan movie that just really goes full throttle on that premise of everyone must die for this romance to work (laughs) yeah i thought there was some really smart writing in this i was really impressed by the first half like i said some great comedy tom hanks is great i feel like meg ryan would be great if they could just give her one developed character or just, you know, make the writing for her characters better. And this, they just 
kind of derailed it for me, especially in the middle. Yeah, it's just kind of a shame because I was really, really into this. I I just feel like if it could have held the quality that it presented in the first part of the film all throughout, this would have been like an easy four, maybe four and a half for me. Gave it three out of five. Still really good. Still appreciate a lot that's going on here, but had some problems. Yeah, I'm with you. I liked it just a little bit more, but I think the problems that you had are pretty much the ones that I had. The writing for the Meg Ryan characters could have been a little better. As far as cohesion goes, there are a few moments that aren't quite as good as the rest of the movie. But I do think there's a lot to chew on here, and it's definitely got its own unique style. So For sure. I give this a 7 out of 10, keeping the trend of us liking each other's picks better than the other. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just stuck in the romantic comedy mold you know i'm trying to force this movie into that because that's what i'm expecting or something i feel like that's kind of your thing you know where like with broken arrow where it's like pretty much a perfect action movie you're like well yeah but they didn't kiss at the end <laughs> that's totally Maybe my that's thing. what's going on it's totally my thing. I just want everybody to be formulaic and cliche that's why i love trojan war <laughs> but I think that's why I like this a little more than you is it yeah. does take some major risk. Yeah. And I think the difficulty level here is a lot higher that they go for, which yeah. is why I, or what Shanley went for yeah. since he did write and direct it. So I feel like I'm kind of grading it a little higher because of that. It yeah. really tries to do some tough things. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I really do. I, I think it's worthy of being a cold classic. I don't think this will be the last time that I watch it. I think I'll probably come back to it at some point. Yeah. I mean, you got that great moon scene that, I think that scene is almost worth the watch alone. Yeah, Yeah. it's yeah, it's really great. It's again, it's moving and it's interesting to see a film that has all these wacky comedy hijinks going on. But then it dives deep into these reflections on death and preparation of death and acceptance of your life and your death and all that going on. So, yeah, it's very unique. I'll give it that. Yes. All hey. right. Well, movie Speaking connection of time. Death. Yeah. What were you oh, saying? yeah. Wait. Yeah. Do that. Uh, but say something about death after you do the uh, connection, so I can do this transition again. Okay. Well, movie connection time. Just a easy route. We're gonna go here with Congo being written by John Patrick Shanley, and this being directed and written by John Patrick Shanley, and some themes of death in both perhaps i mean you've got the the killer gorillas they're all about death right i would rather die than watch congo again and speaking of death are you ready to die because my trivia questions are designed to kill you <laughs> literally a movie that i really want to pair with my next pick okay for halloween for october so i really want to beat you so we i'm gonna watch it again it's been a while but the punishment movie i'm gonna watch too if I beat you, which is going to take so much luck for you to win, you'd literally have to be the best guesser on the planet. Oh, no. You're not going to know the answer to any of this. Uh. I'm just going to call it right now. <laughs> okay. Should I just bomb it and make it look like I let you win? Just be like, oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah, bomb Nick. it because you know the answer to these. Oh, awesome. All right. I don't know who should go first here. You you ask me first. All Let's right. do that. Let's see how this goes. All right. So my first question, Tom Hanks is one of two actors to win Best Actor in a lead role for two years back to back, which was for Philadelphia and Forrest Gump. What other actor also won for Best Actor two years in a row? A, Gary Cooper. B, Spencer Tracy. C, Dustin Hoffman, or D, Walter Brennan? Damn, that's almost as hard as one of my questions. Nice. You gotcha. 
See, now when I go back and watch Gary Cooper in movies, he doesn't seem that good to me. He's not. He, he sucks. seems good to people then. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's really weird. I hate Gary Cooper, like, actually. <laughs> so there are some movies he's in that I love. Like, I mean, I love High Noon. Oh, but, that's the one I hate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. But don't. Get out of here, He's so Jordan. wooden. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> Dustin Hoffman. Nope. Spencer Tracy. Gary Cooper? Spencer Tracy. Okay, I wouldn't have got it right. I wouldn't have got it right. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. In 1995, Meg Ryan starred with Nick's favorite actor of all time, Kevin Klein, <laughs> in the romantic comedy French Kiss. Which actress starred as the character Lily? Oh, God. A, Meg Ryan. B, Susan Anba. C, Renee Humphrey. D, Elizabeth Comelin. Elizabeth Comelin. Wrong. Renee Humphrey. Yeah. C. I'm just totally guessing. I don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> All right. You're going the same route I went last time where you just asked me the names of actors <laughs> in random movies. That's right. Who did this character play in 1995? What color am I thinking? Of? Right. All right. So we both lost one. So a little bit of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan action here. On which holiday... Do Sam and Annie meet in 1993's Sleepless in Seattle? Was it A, Christmas, B, Valentine's Day, C, Halloween, or D, New Year's Eve? I feel like it's fall in that movie. Is it Halloween? Nope. It's Valentine's Day. Dang! Yeah, that generic (laughs) holiday for a romantic movie kind of throws you off there it's like wait it couldn't be that right but no it is yeah oh man i really want to beat you man i really want to make you watch sorry the movie man. that i have picked sorry <sighs> all right in 1990 tom hanks also starred in bonfire of the vanities along with this actor as the character albert fox was it a clifton james b john hancock c kurt fuller d kevin dunn i'm gonna guess clifton james Damn it. Oh, got it. Yes. Nice. So best two out of three, right? <laughs> yeah, you got one. Nice job. All right. So my next question is, this is a tie in with romantic comedy. So in Sweet Home, Alabama from 2002, what does Jake sell in his shop? Is it? Wait, are, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. I let you win <laughs> last week. We got to get back to normal questions hey, that someone could reasonably know. If you've seen that movie, then you would know. And this is from Fred Willard's Magnificent Movie Trivia Book. I got it straight from Fred Willard to bring it back to him. Good old Fred Willard. He's got it in his book. Is it not good enough? Is it not, is it not good enough for you? <sighs> My wife was watching this the other day. I wish I would have paid attention. See, more. it was the Cosmos. <laughs> this is the payback. You didn't watch that movie with your wife. Payback, my friend. All right, so in Sweet Home, Alabama, what does Jake sell in his shop? Is it A, jewelry, B, antiques, C, candles, or D, glass? Why would I, why would I know that? Because it's got Reese Witherspoon and Josh Lucas. Antiques. Wrong, my friend. It was glass. Uh, I was going to say glass. He sells this glass. It's formed after lightning strikes sand on the beach. And that's, Boy, that's, that's something that that's uh, so he and Melanie, Reese Weatherspoon's character, discovered as kids. It's the stupidest, <laughs> stupidest garbage. All right. Time for my question. Wait, so where are we at on the scores here? So You got one. I got none. 
Right. This is the third question okay. that I'm now asking you. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Georges Delarue composed the lovely score for Joe versus the Volcano. For what film did he first compose a score? Was it A, L'Aventure Esse Terras Nuevas, <laughs> B, Le Mystère de Quai de Canti, C, Les Technicians en Pompon Rouge, <laughs> D, To Enfant Terras Sans Delure? Uh, let's see, your last answer was A. I have no idea what any of these titles are. But I'm going to guess D. <laughs> Wrong, you idiot. You don't know anything. It's <laughs> Le Mister de Quai de Conte. Ah, oh, that was my instinct. <laughs> that was Georgia Delarue's first score. That was my next guess. Ask me a question. I'm about to kill you now. Come on. Oh, ask. Okay, okay. Don't you look for another one. You asked me one you already wrote. <laughs> All right. This is also from Fred Willard's book. No, oh, no. <laughs> Damn it, Fred Willard. Damn you, Screw Fred Willard. All right. I don't even know the answer to this. <laughs> oh, you knew the glass question? You big sweet home Alabama fan? Oh, yeah, man. Perfect movie. Five out of five. <laughs> All, right, All right. Ask the question. All right. So who switches homes with Kate Winslet in the movie The Holiday from 2006? Was it A, Alicia Silverstone, B, Cameron Diaz, C, Renee Zellweger, or D, Kate Hudson? It's uh, Cameron Diaz. You got it. You know why I know that one? So I did watch that one with my wife, and she fell asleep when I finished it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'd, I watched that one with my wife, too, but I uh, I think I erased that movie from my brain. It wasn't terrible. All right, number four. Beloved Abe Vigoda appeared in one other 1990 film, and he was in a lot of Conan O'Brien episodes in the 90s, too. That's really how I came to know him more than anything. He's so funny on there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what other 1990 film did he appear in? Was it A, Look Who's Talking, B, Keaton's Cop, C, Dancer, D, Fist of Honor? Hmm. Was it Dancer? Wrong. Keaton's Cop. Keaton's Cop. Are you flipping through the book I'm, right I'm now? I'm flipping through the book because I need to... I'm so disappointed. Oh, Jordan. wait. I had a... Um, here we go. This is not fair. You can scale up or down when you do that. <laughs> well, I if, win. If, it's over. If, I win. If you had written... Disqualified. If you had written multiple questions, you could do the same. <laughs> Mine are all an equal level of impossible. Impossible. <laughs> You're really lucky you guessed Clifton James because I know you don't know who Clifton James is. No, I don't. It's the sheriff from Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun. See, I knew the answer to that sure question. Sure you did. Sure you did. That's the only one of my questions I knew the answer to beforehand. Okay. Uh, what type of store does Hugh Grant's character own in Notting Hill? I don't know what kind of stores people work in in movies that I haven't watched. Why would I know that? Because you should have watched Notting Hill starring Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. It's a lovely film. Uh, I saw About a Boy with Hugh Grant. There you go. This was better. All right, so your choices are A, a pet store, B, an antique store, C, a toy store, or D, a bookstore. I have no idea. A pet store? No, sir. It was a bookstore. Yeah, stupid. (laughs) Stupid because you suck and you lose. So this is the fifth question. I feel like unless you picked a horror movie as the punishment, if we both miss this, I feel like we should have to watch my pick. <laughs> Unless I picked a horror movie. Oh, because it'll tie in with your pick. 
Is yes. it a terrible horror movie like that I don't want to watch that's a true well, punishment? It's, it's very fun, but it's very stupid. Okay. It's super stupid. Okay. But I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it too. Okay. Because I haven't seen it in like 25 years. I'll watch your movie because I actually don't have anything on the on the back burner <laughs> yes. other than Mr. Nanny. So. <laughs> we'll be even so, for me letting you win. Right. I, I just want to win to have the bragging rights. You will win best guesser of the, the best. Night. Yes. I just. <laughs> Because that's, that's all, all either do. one of us have done. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I did know the Cameron Diaz question, but that was okay. it. The rest of your questions stumped me. All right. What was Joe the Volcano's Robert Stack's last starring role before his death? Was it A, Beavis and Butthead do America, B, Killer Bud, C, Mumford, D, The Race for the Cure? I'm going to go with Killer Bud. You win, Jordan. You win. Yes. You did it. I broke you. Nice job. Hey, can we get back to asking fair questions next episode? Fair, I promise fair I'll questions? You fair You're ones. one to talk with your <laughs> whatever the well, crap. Since I asked you, like, what's your name in the last episode, I had to even it <laughs> this out. This is true. This is true. I'll ask you fair ones next time. I promise. Okay. Even if you ask me, what'd you do? Romantic comedy questions this time? Was that the theme? Yeah, which is not absurd. That's my least favorite genre. But, you know, I don't feel like that was completely unfair. We watched a semi-romantic comedy, and I asked questions right out of Fred Willard's book. Because I was too lazy or didn't have time to make my own. (laughs) (laughs) Which you could scale. Yeah. Okay. The movie that I want us to open up with. Wait a minute. Next episode. I finally won and I'm not going to get to pick a terrible movie for you. No, because you didn't pick. It's Mr. Nanny. No, you're watching Mr. Nanny. (laughs) (laughs) That is a horrible movie, but not a horror movie. I'll do do this. I'll watch whatever horrible horror movie you want to watch, but you also have to watch Mr. Nanny. (laughs) And we can go from the horrible to the horror. What were you going to pick that might... That might persuade me. Well, I thought it would have been fun. My main pick is going to be The Frighteners, 1996 horror movie starring Michael J. Fox. I was really pumped about that. It's Peter, Peter Jackson, Jackson movie. Yeah. I thought that would pair up perfectly with 1995's Mosquito, <laughs> which is a really goofy, silly horror oh, movie with about the giant, giant mosquitoes, mosquitoes that kill campers. Okay. But Jordan, since you had to be such an asshole <laughs> and tell me that I had to watch Mr. Nanny, instead our next episode is going to be Mr. Nanny and the Frighteners. So thanks for killing this energy. <laughs> nah, there, let's do stupid Fred Willard questions. <laughs> Let's do Mosquito. I'm totally down for that. You don't have to watch Mr. Nanny. All right. Keep that in your back pocket, though. I feel like I should be forced to watch that at some point. Yeah, you should. If you want to just watch it and then text me about it, that's cool. (laughs) No, save it. Save it. (laughs) Okay, okay. This will be my one Mr. Nanny pass. All right. Yeah, I'm down with Mosquito and Frighteners. That'll be a nice pair. I agree. I'll save it. I'll save it. I think so too for Halloween. Wait, does it, if I'm going to save Mr. Nanny, does this mean I can just like at any point force you to watch a terrible movie because I have like a win tucked away? I guess so. Did you, <laughs> way back in the day when we didn't even do 90s movies, did you throw me a bone by pretending like, like you didn't know that Billie Holiday was the answer? Yeah, I, I faked that. <laughs> for all our listeners who go that far back. Recently, I confessed to Nick, yeah. We're even on letting each other win one. Yeah. So, yes, you have a get-out-of-jail-free Mr. Nanny card. Anytime you win, I can pull that out and say, wait a minute, no, you have to watch Mr. Nanny instead of whatever terrible movie you were trying to make exactly. me watch. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that was my point. Okay. That's your, that's your card. Yeah. So, if you just assign me something god-awful and I just, like, can't stand it, I'm going to whip that out and say, nope, Mr. Nanny says no. You can't do it after the fact. (laughs) 
You have to pull it out in the episode after I beat you in trivia okay. and assign the movie. You have to say, nope, Mr. Nanny, and I'll be like, no. <laughs> My world no. has ended. Nah. Okay, that's fine. Right on. All right, and we have a special guest for this episode, yes. which I wouldn't want to make Doug watch Mr. Nanny do. This so is true. I feel like Doug would enjoy Mosquito more. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Maybe he's a Mr. Nanny fan. Yeah, do you want to talk about our guest for the next episode? It's our, our first guest that we're both going to be on with. We did have a guest host when we did a Star Wars bonus episode, Jonathan Robker, Star Wars expert. But for this episode, we're both going to be here. It's not a bonus episode. And who do we have on? Yeah, we've got Doug McCambridge from Good Times, Great Movies. Kind of, I'd like to consider them our sister podcast because they cover terrible 80s movies. And we kind of ripped them off and said, hey, we'll do 90s movies. Yeah, he's just an online friend, good pal that we've known for a little while and just a, a great guy, just really fun to talk to. So, yeah, he'll be joining us for the Frighteners episode and uh, he's, he seems really stoked. So excited to have him on as a guest. Right on. And I guess we don't have to make him watch Mosquito, but let me throw that out there. Hey, if you don't want to just listen to us talk about Mosquito for 10 minutes before we talk about the Frighteners, maybe watch maybe watch Mosquito. Yeah, it's fun. from the clips I've seen of it, it looks fun. It's probably really dumb, but it's got giant mosquitoes chasing people in the jungle. So In Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull ripped off a key scene for Mosquito. We can get into that. I can't wait to talk about yeah. it. Steven Spielberg's a hack. Yeah, all right. Next time, we'll watch Mosquito and the Frighteners. Or Frighteners, maybe no the, just Frighteners. There is a the. Oh, Peter Jackson, he got that the in there, uh, the, Frighteners. The, fri- the Frighteners. the Frighteners. The Frighteners. The Let's do it. I've never seen The Frighteners, so this will be fun. Oh, oh, dude. Great, great, great. Yeah. I'm pumped. I haven't seen it since 1996, so 24 years. Sweet. Well, cool. Yeah, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any feedback for us, you can email us at filmshakepodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at 90s Movies Pod. That's 90s Movies Pod. Check us out on there. Nick's pretty good about posting stuff on the tweets to Sphere. Hope you enjoy. And we'll catch you next time for more Film Shake. Take it easy. I was born one morning, it was drizzling rain. Fighting in trouble, my middle name. I was raising a cane, break by no mama line. And a high-toned woman made me walk the line. You load 16 tons, why do you get another day older and deeper in debt? So Peter, don't you call me, girls? Now, oh, whatever, it's fine. I'll, right, I'll fix yeah, it in we'll... post. <laughs> <laughs> Just fix it in post. <laughs> <laughs>